Hello. Thank you for joining me on this third podcast. I'm Ken Erickson. Our first two podcasts were before the November 2020 election, so a lot's happened since then, but some things stay the same, including the division in our country. The theme for all three podcasts is Serving and Uniting America. Our first two podcasts traced my efforts over about a six-year period, from 1984 to 1990, to come up with some suggestions that, that might help President Reagan's administration, the Foreign Affairs staff, in somehow setting a more positive tone with the Soviets, who were our main adversary at the time. And so much today, to me, seems similar to the way the friction and things were back then in, in the 80s. At the time, I was trying to help set a positive tone in some way because of my concerns over a lack of, of some kinds of agreements on nuclear arms. At that time in the 80s, there seemed to be more of a, a concern or even a dread among peoples, not only in America, but in Russia, in Europe, etc. So I thought maybe something could happen at one of the meetings that I could contribute to that just might have a, a better tone and help. Small thing, but still important. My second suggestion to them uh, was reported in the Detroit Free Press on January 12, 1986. The reporter was James McCartney, who worked for the Free Press from their Washington, D.C. office. My first proposal before that was titled A Broader Pilgrimage, and I received a letter in response to it from Thomas W. Simmons, Jr., President Reagan's Director for Soviet Union Affairs. He was very positive in his response, and he assured me that they'd keep this in mind, but he made it very clear things were so negative in our relation with the Soviets, it would have to have something else happen over a period of time before they could use this. About five years later, on that issue, I raised it again with the State Department and got a response from Alexander Fershbaugh. He was director of the Office of Soviet Union Affairs. And I got a response from him in December of 1989. And he assured me that having John Eisenhower repeat his toast of August 1945, which was given in Leningrad, and he's, he said, quote, that toast is more possible today than it was even five years ago, unquote. Things had improved. There were more exchanges even amongst uh, civilians between the United States, Europe, and Russia. I, I want to, again, give credit as I have in earlier podcasts. My pastor was very supportive and said, you know, you have to try this. Anything might help. And also, uh, Mark Hatfield who was then senator from Oregon, was very supportive. Uh, I, I met him at a, a meeting where he gave a talk, a, a Christian meeting in Eaton Rapids in uh, 1985. And it took him just two, three minutes. And, and he said, look, I, I will definitely follow this and keep me posted on everything. And finally, I, I had read in a magazine one of the security people attached to the White House was a gentleman by the name of Ambassador Jack Matlock. 
So I called his office, and his secretary uh, took talked to me about two minutes, said to give her a minute. She went, talked to Ambassador Matlock, came back and said, would you please, if it's not written up, write it up as concinctly as you can and get it right to us. And then she explained how they'd get it directly when the mail got there. What we didn't know and, and couldn't see was um, the Soviet Union was changing. Soon it was shedding uh, the eastern part of its, I mean the western part of its uh, empire, which was Eastern Europe. And Mikhail Gorbachev, who had been working with the United States and came up with the INF Treaty in 1987, in, in short time lost power. And the Russian leaders who followed sort of floundered for a few years. And then finally, uh, a new leader emerged, Vladikin Putin, around the mid-1990s. And he came with vastly different hopes and goals for the Russian nation and its great people. Today, it seems in many respects like the Cold War is back again. Both nations today, and even the West, you could say the United States plus the West, are dangerously divided from Russia. No longer the Soviet Union, but still Russia with many problems with us. And especially that's true in our global age of um, trying to come up with new agreements on nuclear weapons. You know, we have not regulated them. We haven't really had any kind of meeting on this issue with, with China. So it's, it's really been a concern. And that concern was raised recently in an article in the Wall Street Journal that came about with the passing of uh, George Schultz, who was Secretary of State under Ronald Reagan. Uh, excellent, excellent negotiator. And the article was signed by William Perry, Henry Kessinger, and Sam Nunn. And Sam Nunn, for the, some period of time now, has been the co-chairman of the Nuclear Threat Initiative, a group that's dedicated to trying to come up with things where we can get a handle, not just between a couple countries, but everywhere in the world, on the nuclear threat that is posed. A couple things uh, here in that article, and again, he was working for uh, Ronald Reagan. It says that Ronald Reagan considered nuclear weapons to be, quote, totally irrational, totally inhumane, good for nothing but killing, possibly destructive of life on Earth and civilization. And about three, three and a half years ago, George Schultz spoke to Congress. And they, he's quoted as saying, thinking about our people today, our, our civilians today, versus uh, people back in, in the mid-80s. He says, quote, I fear people have lost that sense of dread, unquote, because there was a great deal of worry that something could happen, maybe even by accident, and really, other than some key people like Sam Nunn, there's not that same sense of threat today. Uh, you notice on the recent campaign for the 2020 election, the candidates for president, very little was said about the nuclear threat compared to everything else that was covered, even on foreign affairs. 
that's of concern and, and was of concern to George Schultz, who just passed away a few months ago and is currently a concern by Sam Nunn and others who, who share share that concern. The grand theme for all three podcasts, Serving and Uniting America, I, I now believe can't be separated from our basic imperative to reach out and fully engage with nations and people beyond our borders if we ever hope to unite and serve each other here at home, which is a, a real concern right now, the way we're divided here at home. If we neglect or abandon our decades-long allies, another concern, especially in these last four, five, six years, especially including the peoples of NATO countries, we lose the wisdom and the courage and really the numerical strength they bring, which helps us here at home and abroad. And we, in her turn, are able to help them with their ever-changing challenges. If we turn a blind eye to authoritarian adversaries, other kinds of dictators, or worse, if we simply accept the description that dictators and dictator wannabes give us as their excuse, that, look, mind your own business, we'll take care of ours. If you think we have too narrow a national unity, that's your problem. That's not your business. So what happens is we're looking on on these dictators who have a national unity, but it's a forced national unity. It's not freely uh, united. And it's devoid of freedom, and you have to look hard uh, to find much justice. So that's, that's a concern, because if freedom is weakened everywhere else, that affects us in ways too, whether we always realize it or not. Leaders like that look on dissent from below as either ill-informed or traitorous, or both. And just as important, any criticism they hear from people abroad, like the United States or Western Europe, they dismissed. They say that, look, these are just outdated observations from powers they see already in decline. And they consider the West and the United States are destined to fade away as far as a leadership role in the world in the approaching decades to come. And they've repeated this over the last several years, but they've even repeated it more recently, even face-to-face during the uh, current Biden administration. Now, most Americans and our leaders today don't accept that the authoritarian government, whether it's of the right or left, makes no difference, can serve to encourage and empower any people and its nation to build an enduring path to a community that is both freely united and prosperous This is also true, we see, over much of the planet. Many yearn and pray and work hard for true community here at home and abroad. But that mission, our mission too, it's threatened. It's dangerously threatened. If community is successfully redefined by these increasing numbers of authoritarian nations. Now, resistance to this uh, new narrative that's popped up, is seen today, of course, in places like Myanmar, Belarus, Russia, and and you name it. But no one really knows at this point 
what the final result is going to be. What can we, both citizens here and our government, do today? The Reagan State Department gives us some help here. They have shown us how a steady focus, fueled and guided by truthful discernment, and that's important. You know, we're not going to pretend we're friends. We've never been friends with Russia. We were allies once. There was either, even some camaraderie. John Eisenhower speaks of this. But we were never friends. So we need to approach our, our affairs with Russia, and everyone really, with truthful discernment. What do they want? What do we want? And have courage, and very important, have bipartisan mutual respect here at home so we can unite America and be empowered to work with our allies, including NATO, and our other allies, and encourage some, but unfortunately not all, of our adversaries to think, to act, and work together on really uh, uh, making some progress on some of our most challenging central problems that we all face. Where do we start? I suggest we begin with our longtime NATO allies. They're our partners for over seven decades or longer, and reaching out anew to them can help bring back bipartisanship here at home, while also it can feed the still powerful flame of true democratic freedom abroad. That's really what I'm looking at as our main focus that maybe we haven't always given enough attention to, you know, as a, as a whole society. More specifically, we can begin with revitalizing our alliance, our NATO alliance. And by that, I mean making it more credible. You know, we, we don't want our current other members in, in NATO to question, look, here they are uh, talking uh, about us being a united group again, but how long is that going to last? Are we going to have someone else come up in, in just a few years who replaces them? and says, you know, maybe, maybe it's not in our interest so much. Maybe we'll drop out of NATO. So we need to really credibly make clear to them that, yeah, we're with you now, but we're, we're with you way beyond now, not just for 40 years, 40 times four years, through the rest of this century at least. That's really the, the goal that we need to focus on in a, in a responsible way with the give and take that is necessary with true allies, true allies who want the best for all of us and each of us. By building again, credibly to the rest of the world, who we are, what defines NATO's purpose, and proving how we will carry out our missions, NATO's reality is clearly visible to really both our friends and our foes. Now, this is crucial because one of the really threats that we face is if some nation, especially an adversary, makes mistakes and makes a harmful miscalculation about our, our assessment, uh, about our purpose, about our resolve, about our capabilities. We've got to make sure that they understand just what we're capable of and what our intentions are because we're not looking 
to create trouble. We're looking to negotiate with everyone to avoid serious troubles. So we can set a tone for doing this in part by reconnecting with a brief history of our past. That helps everyone. So we're going to take a quick look here together at NATO from its beginning to its present right now. So let's begin. Both President Truman and President Eisenhower played founding roles in the birth of NATO. Truman quickly saw that containment of the Soviet Union was the only option short of war for protecting recently liberated nations of Western Europe. General Eisenhower became NATO's first supreme commander. In her informative book titled How Ike Led, released last year and reviewed by David Rall, R-O-L-L, uh, Wall Street Journal, August 1st and 2nd, 2020, Susan Eisenhower connects very well Eisenhower's commitment, his service, and really his, his uh, concerns uh, relating to NATO. He connects that to his increasing worry by 1951 that the likely Republican frontrunner, Robert Taft, who was leading everyone in some polls, still didn't grasp the vital need to fully maintain the NATO alliance of Western nations. Those countries bonding together, including us, to protect their hard-won freedom and democracy. Now, here's where years of people <laughs> come in uh, to, to, uh, to being, okay? The people who were of age during the war and really came of age even during the 50s understood instinctively that seared into Ike's soul, including in our own understanding, while he was Allied Supreme Commander in North Africa and Europe, seared into him would be that costly service of soldiers he led, not just from the United States, but from Britain, from Canada, from France, and elsewhere. He even oversaw gathering together those Polish soldiers recently released from Soviet prison camps into a fighting force, outfitted them, got them training, and they made their contribution in the stand, the common stand, against Hitler. So Americans at that time understood that our country never depended on ourselves alone and our soldiers alone. We depended on allies. Ike also knew very well the horrible price Russia, then our ally, our eastern ally, was paying and would pay until hostilities finally ceased. All of this molded and steered Eisenhower's personal decision to run for the presidency in 1952. He ran, he won the presidency and served two full terms and did a great job. And, and one of the stances he took as, as president was making clear to the Russians, we're staying right there with the French and the British in West Berlin. And that's a given. Accept it. And they did. And then after two full terms, he passed the uh, baton, presidential baton, 
to a naval captain, also a veteran of World War II, Jack Kennedy. President Biden, now in office, has consistently supported NATO throughout his political life. He's now working to make NATO again clear to everyone that NATO's here to stay. He's uh, working hard to uh, bring some comfort to the worries they've had the last few years, that maybe we're not going to stick with them, and he's off to a good start on that. At the same time, he and his, he and his staff are actively seeking a closer and more pragmatic partnership with Republicans in Congress on an array of foreign and domestic challenges. Both Presidents Truman and Eisenhower can today add genuine heft to President Biden's ongoing efforts to forge and carry out bipartisan legislation that reaches and impacts all Americans, even other nations, in the positive, productive direction that delivers measurable results that most Americans and others yearn to experience. Now, it's, it's very easy to face the many winds that oppose us and think, man, oh man, this, this is just, can we really make progress the way things are? And yeah, there, there are a lot of opposing winds facing us, facing our adversaries also, we might point out. But really, the most mighty wind of all that we encounter is the bracing wind of hope and change that really works on our behalf if we embrace each other and we embrace the source of that wind and find that that wind is at our back and helps us to accomplish what we need to accomplish. It's a matter of life and death for all of us, really. Both Harry Truman and Dwight Eisenhower have given us their informed grandchildren who are dedicated to our country and its future. Their commitment to NATO is unassailable, an expression, a thoughtful expression of their American patriotism. President Biden can at minimum reach out to enlist them or some others like them to help sustain and strengthen NATO to fit really the broad dimensions that both of their grandfathers uh, had in mind. While roving ambassadors to heads of various NATO members, they can target and, and visit and have interactions with service personnel in each NATO country. They can stay at allied military bases, naval ports, and strategic air bases. Just as important, they can embrace and, and applaud our own American service personnel, men and women, wherever across the globe they are serving alongside members of the entire NATO family. Finally, President Biden can periodically remain our citizens, remind our citizens and others of the world's last 120 years of history. At a time when our current hold and use of that history, frankly, is tenuous at best, that's a concern shared by many uh, historians uh, about where we are today. Again, I, I want to refer to another article on that very subject. And here again, it's the Wall Street Journal, this time March 2nd, 2021. 
And the article is signed by six former U.S. education secretaries. I'll mention two of them. Arne Duncan, a dedicated Democrat, and Lamar Alexander, a, a very prolific Republican. Both of these men, Arne Duncan, Lamar Alexander, are pragmatic, practical men. Here's a part of the article. And they're talking, here's the title, America Needs History and Civics Education to Promote Unity. And here's what they say, in part. History, which provides a frame of reference for the present, has been sorely neglected over the past half century in U.S. schools. This can't continue to be the case. And they mention the same thing that we've neglected uh, civics. The small disagreement that I'd have is, I'll split the difference with them. I'll say it's 25 years <laughs> that we have uh, lost more. They point out, especially because of what's been going on, how divided we are, things like that. January 6th, you can, you can come up with other instances of division. The last paragraph, now the fragility of our democratic institutions is in plain sight. This is the time to give priority to history and civics education for American children. And I, I think that speaks to a lot of us, whether you're Republican or, or Democrat or independent. I'm an independent myself. I uh, have been all my life. Okay, so what can we do? Really, where does that leave us? Well, number one, I'd like to make my point that although a lot of things are named as the reason the last 25 or so years, uh, we're, we're, we just don't have that grasp of history, that concern of history that we once had. And a lot of things are mentioned. Uh, too many professors on the left were just too occupied with the fast movement of our current events, all kinds of things. And I'm going to say all of that, all of that secondary, every bit of it. The primary thing, reason I see for our, our trouble keeping our grasp on, on our history the last hundred or so years is that the people we depended on, who we lived with, who we, we heard on the radio in person, have passed on. The people who were of understanding age in, in World War II in the late 40s and, and came of age in the 50s and therefore had parents and had, had teachers as I did, who had served in the war, teachers I had in, in high school and uh, college. Uh, I remember uh, Mr. Terrace, my 10th grade history teacher, who, who served in the Pacific, but got me thinking uh, when he made the point that there were so many Russian men killed, so many lost, that there was a heck of a imbalance between the number of women and the number of men left alive at the end of the war, you know, to pair up and get married. And... Uh, you know, when you come up with numbers like 23, 25, 26 million, I, I guess I, it made me understand and appreciate that, plus all of the other problems that happened. So all of those things happen, and I think our current president understands that because he came of age. He reached adulthood of 18 by the end of the 50s. So these are the kinds of things that really play a part. And I'll, I'll go a step forward, really. Perhaps during his time in office, President Biden really, during one of his State of the Union speeches, he could draw up to his podium helpful volunteers 
that he has uh, gotten to spread the word uh, in Europe that we're back. Volunteers like the grandchildren of President Truman, President Eisenhower, up to his podium for a stand-up salute and applause from every member of the House and Senate and other guests present in attendance. Following this tribute, the descendants of President Truman can go down eagerly to shake hands and sit then among the Republican members of Congress. The offspring of President Eisenhower's clan will similarly join the Democratic members. Both presidents, we, we've got to remember, sought to serve the needs of all our people during their White House years. Also, it's important to remember how war influences people. Eisenhower, as Allied Supreme Commander, overseeing the actual assault on D-Day, June 6, 1944, he would on that day of the invasion of Normandy, that liberation, he would have thought on that very day of his servicemen and their families, the risks they were taking, all those kinds of, of things that you, that you face, and the irreplaceable human cost of what the world was then witnessing unfolding. Party allegiance played no part in this unfolding drama that day, largely determining when or whether much of Europe would breathe free again. Now, all of this serves to give more credibility to why we, we need NATO and why we need allies like NATO, even allies beyond NATO. It, it helps all of the people understand that, including the members of NATO themselves, including our other allies, such as in Asia, and including our adversaries, and finally including others who still making up their mind what stand they're going to take. It, it really sets the tone for all of this revitalizing NATO into a credible, agile, diplomatic agent, as well as a, a really powerful and useful defensive tool that will be recognized as such by everyone. So we, we, we look at this and we ask ourselves, well, what else might we do relating to Russia? Never our friend, but once our ally. What could we do today? And if we can't do something today, is there something we possibly could do this year? 2021. And I believe there is because this year is the 80th anniversary of Russia suffering Hitler's attack, Operation Barbarossa, and that happened in June of 1941. So this, this June, 80 years. And that six-month period taking us to the end of really uh, 1941, but We'll celebrate that at the end of this year, the 80th year, this December coming up, is a landmark point of history for the whole world. Because by the end of that war, there was tremendous fighting between Russia and Hitler, and also, also tremendous uh, fighting as we were involved against Imperial Japan. And I feel we need somehow 
to make a point of that. And really, we need to make it not just to the leadership. We need the chance to talk to the Russian people and make that point. The one thing that disappointed me on the first things in the 80s, those two suggestions that they took up right away and used, was it was given to the leadership, but it never got to the Russian people. What Ronald Reagan said about the tremendous victory at Stalingrad and the other things he said on behalf of, about the great Russian people. And the same thing that Max Kampelman, who negotiated the INF Treaty, said to the leadership about the first major victory of all the allies against Hitler in December of 1941, when the tremendous defense of Moscow by the Russian soldiers and the Russian people as well turned into a rout that pushed the German Huns back far, 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 hundreds of miles, and they never threatened uh, they never threatened that again. And I think, frankly, our Secretary of State, Mr. Blinken, could be a tremendous person to give that. And, a year, and if that goes well as I think it can, our own president can mark the Battle of Stalingrad just like Ronald Reagan did. And our Secretary of Defense, the following year, could give that excellent toast that John Eisenhower gave in 1945, August, uh, which is a tremendous, tremendous, honest as well salute, which really, really pleased Russian gentleman by the name of Marshal Zhukov. Boy, when you're called on him, which is what happened, you want to give a pretty darn good, <laughs> good uh, uh, toast. And he rose to the occasion with God's help. God bless all of you. Good health to you. God help our nation. And God help all of us, including reaching out, especially to the Russian people, the common people, because that's what these toasts did in all three cases as well, especially the toast from, from uh, John, John Eisenhower and the comments Churchill even made about the battle over Moscow. So, again... God bless to all of you. Thank you very much. God bless. Goodbye.